Well, our series that we are continuing on this morning is based on Ephesians 5, and we're looking at the topic of marriage. And before we we get into the message today, I wanted to highlight this event that we have coming up towards the end of June, on June 22nd. It's an event that's going to be right here in the banquet hall, here at the Langley Event Center, and it's on a Friday evening, and it's called Becoming Soulmates. Les and Leslie Parrott, there's a picture of them. This is what soulmates do. You pick up your spouse and you smile at the camera and you even kick your legs if, if you really are joyful about it. If any of, who here has read a book or heard any teaching by Lesson Leslie Parrott? Okay, fair, fair amount of you, maybe 30, 30, 40%. They're excellent teachers. It's not every day that a man named Les finds and marries a man named Leslie and that the two of them are PhDs in relationships. But that's how this happened. And I guess that's what makes you soulmates. But um, all kidding aside, they're excellent teachers, great speakers, and we have an opportunity to hear them teach. Uh, Whether you've been married for 38 years or this is your first year of marriage, even if you aren't married, this is an excellent event. We highly recommend it, and it's truly a treat to have them uh, be here in June. And here's the good news for us, is as people of, of Jericho Ridge, we get a discount on this. So the usual price is $60 for a couple. It's $50 for those of us connected here at Jericho Ridge, 56 with HST. And it's also an incentive to register through ACS, our, our online database system, because when you register through it, you get that preferred rate. If you go to the website that they tell you here, you're going to have to pay just like everyone else. And boy, you know, there's nothing like some good frugality and some wise stewardship to get you motivated to come to this. So I'm an advocate for this. Our leadership is, and I really encourage you to attend this. I think you're, you're going to find it very helpful and very enjoyable. If you have any questions about that, you can refer to our website about the event, uh, or you can speak with me following today's gathering. Well, last week, uh, Pastor Brad kick-started our series called Holy Matrimony. And he, let, he read through the entire chapter of, of Ephesians chapter 5, and this is our main text for the series. And his, his point uh, last week was that marriage is not designed for personal happiness, but it's actually designed for holiness. Marriage isn't about what the individual spouse gets out of marriage, but it's actually about encouraging your spouse towards what God has in store for them, but pushing them and, and sharpening, ironing, and making sure that the spouse becomes holy. That's the goal. It's not personal ful- fulfillment, but a journey towards further godliness. Now, before Pastor Brad began his teaching, you might remember that he began with two disclaimers. Disclaimers not only for last week's message, but actually for the entire series. And the disclaimers are actually very similar to each other, but they were to two different audiences. One disclaimer was for those who are single, who have never been married. Uh, The other disclaimer was for those that have been hurt by marriage, whether it's been a a divorce or a long-term separation, and, and have, through their own experiences, experienced the difficulties of marriage. And so have understandably uh, become somewhat bitter to the whole concept of marriage. And, and Brad wanted us to understand that regardless of what camp you might find yourself in, married, divorced, singled, ambivalent towards marriage, it, it's incredibly important that we, all of us, understand the biblical understanding of what marriage is. Because this is a God-ordained institution. This was part of his design. And so whether you will never get married in your lifetime uh, or, or whether you're struggling through what it means to be married, we feel like this, this message is important for us as a church and for as individuals to develop a healthy understanding of marriage. And since now it's my turn to speak, 
find that I will follow the lead of our lead pastor and, and have my own disclaimer. Uh, but my disclaimer is a bit more personal than it is corporate. I'm a pastor, and I'm thankful for the work that I've been entrusted with from Pastor Brad and our elders and our members and attendees here at Jericho Ridge. And one of my responsibilities, one of my tasks as a pastor is to preach, to prepare messages from God's Word and to do that to the best of my ability to teach God's truth to the congregation. Now, I'd love to say that this is a joy each and every week, but it certainly comes with a bit of despair here and there. And it's, it's one of my responsibilities to do on topics like marriage and, and topics that are much easier to preach on as well. But I'm not only a pastor, I'm a husband. And that's where this disclaimer starts, starts to come in. Because there's some topics that you can teach on, and regardless of, of what that topic is, uh, many of you might think, well, you know, maybe we assume that, that Keith is perfect in that area. Well, this is not one of those topics. And so I would love to say that, that I am a perfect husband. I would love to say that all of the biblical principles that we'll be looking at this week and at other times throughout the series when I'll be teaching are ones that I fully exercise in my own life, but I don't want anyone here to be deceived. And so whether you're here this morning or listening to this message online in the weeks to come, I don't want anyone uh, to be under the impression that I've got a perfect marriage and that things go perfectly according to plan. So please uh, uh, make sure that, um, that you recognize that I'm preaching to myself and my wife as well as, as the rest of you. And I hope that you receive this message with, with grace. And I'm certainly thankful for my wife who extends grace to me and also to God for his grace when I fall short. Now, marriage is hard work. It's extremely hard work. And sadly, this is an overlooked reality in many, many marriages. Actually, people who aren't even married many times do not understand how hard work marriage is. But lots of people think it should come easily. And it's just something that happens naturally. Uh, Pastor Brad introduced this book last week, and this is a great resource. If you want to pick up a book on marriage, this is an excellent one. There's a number of other topics that are addressed in here as well. It's written by Timothy Keller along with his wife, Kathy, and it's called The Meaning of Marriage. And in his book, he says that he's talked to thousands of couples. He's been a pastor for about 30 years. He's talked to thousands of couples, and many of them tell him this, love shouldn't be this hard. It should come naturally. His response to this is something like this, he says. Why believe that? Would someone who wants to play professional baseball say, it shouldn't be so hard to hit a fastball? Would someone who wants to write the greatest American novel of her generation say, it shouldn't be hard to create believable characters and compelling narrative? He says their usual reply is, but this isn't baseball and this isn't literature. This is love. Love should just come naturally if two people are compatible, if they are truly soulmates. Based on your experience, which argument do you agree with? Does love come naturally when two people are compatible? When two people really fit together? Is it just a natural thing that happens? Or does lifelong love and lifelong commitment take a lot of work? Does it take as much work as a professional skill. Now, many of us will choose to answer this question depending on our understanding of choice. 
You know, it's interesting that in our society, most of us, the, the vast majority of us, choose our marriage partner. It's not like that in a number of other societies and throughout history where marriages were arranged. I think some people would say, well, if I had an, an arranged marriage, then that maybe may not be compatible. That wasn't my choice. That was someone else's choice. But we value choice so much in our society that I think a lot of people would say, well, I chose my spouse. I chose, and and, and they, they are compatible with me. And, and I usually make good decisions. I make good choices. So, so yes, maybe this is indicative of the fact that love should come naturally. Now, it's true that some people would say, well, you know, there were a few factors that didn't make it a, a true choice, perhaps. Uh, there might have been peer pressure. There might have been uh, parents who, who kind of pressured them into marrying. There might have been an unplanned pregnancy. But quite often, most people who are married in, in our society would say, this was a choice that I made. But does that mean that marriage partners made a good choice? Did they choose the right spouse? And does this mean that love would come to them naturally? Well, I want to quote an ethics professor. He's a professor at Duke University, and his name is Stanley Harawas. And he makes a point that when you first read it, it's shocking. This is what he says in this book. Destructive to marriage is a self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family I primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. This is what Pastor Brad was speaking on last week. The assumption that is if we, the assumption is that if we find someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. What he says is that you cannot find a perfect partner. And even if you do, As soon as you say I do at the marriage altar, things begin to change. Your spouse changes, you change, your circumstances definitely change. You move somewhere else, you take on a different job. Perhaps there's changes in your families, but one of you becomes ill. There's all sorts of changes that happen, and because of that, he says, true compatibility is just a myth because we're always changing. You really don't know how your spouse is going to respond four years from now, You don't know what you're going to be like 15 years from now. So this understanding of compatibility and love coming naturally, that's really just a deception. And this is why traditional wedding vows are so, so powerful. A lot of contemporary wedding vows put a lot of emphasis on the individual, on me. I love you. I fell in love through this. This is what I like from you. When you do this, it makes me feel this way. Traditional wedding vows actually take away the individual person. And they make a commitment to marriage itself, and they make a commitment to the spouse. When the commitment is only to your own feelings in the present day, that's really not much of a risk at all. But the promise of future love, regardless of health, wealth, or beauty, that's commitment. That's love. And that takes work. But There's another reason that love doesn't come naturally. Beyond the logic of some professor from Duke 
who probably many of us do not know. There's another reason that's far more personal and that is far more powerful and that comes from, to us from the Scriptures. And that's the idea of this. Any two people that choose to marry are marred by sin. The distortion of sin has an impact on each and every marriage, even if you're not married. Uh, we looked at this in, in our series on the gospel, this understanding that humanity's biggest problem is a sin problem. Each and every person sins. And because of that, there's consequences and there's difficulties through that. And within the context of a marriage, the husband sins and the wife sins too. And one of the primary characteristics of sin is self-centeredness. It's the idea that each person does what they want, regardless of what their spouse may say, what someone else may say, what God may say, do, think, or desire. The idea of self is that you do something for your own sake, for your own desire. You do what you want to do. And guess what? If you're married, that's what your spouse is doing. And your spouse is saying the exact same thing about you right now too because we're all sinful. And marriage has this embedded right in it as well. The doctrine of sin explains why marriage is so painfully difficult. Denis de Rocheman, who's a, a, a Frenchman, and, and I probably just butchered his name, uh, he says this, why should neurotic, selfish, immature people suddenly become angels when they fall in love? Now, I think maybe this is why celebrity marriages have such a terrible track record, right? But if we're to look at this seriously and personally, this is why marriage is tough for us too. We're selfish people. We're emotionally immature people. We're sinful people. But this fact, this reality in each of our lives doesn't change the fact that marriage is not hopeless. It's not hopeless. And it doesn't change the fact that this is God's idea. He instituted marriage. He had a desire and a plan for marriage. So what can be done? If we're selfish people, if we're sinful people, what can we do to help ourselves and to create healthy marriages? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, which is the text that Brad wrote, uh, read through last week, the Apostle Paul says something very interesting about marriage. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians chapter 5. A few of the verses are going to come up on the side screens as, as we go on. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that marriage is a profound mystery. I'm sure that probably everyone has heard this phrase before because it's something that, that not just Bible scholars and readers of the Bible have quoted. Lots of people quote this. If you've ever been to a marriage seminar or read a marriage book, we love to talk about how marriage is a profound mystery. It gets a laugh uh, people who have no connection to Christianity at all will say that, that marriage is a profound mystery. But when Paul was writing this, he wasn't looking for, for some sort of, uh, of humor response from his readers. He was actually teaching here. He's, he's teaching and he's instructing the, the husband and the wife here, and he calls marriage a profound mystery. Let's look at this statement a bit and, and provide a little bit of context. In chapter 5, verse 21, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, begins this section by, by talking about submission and this understanding of mutual submission. It ends one section and then it introduces this section on marriage. And then right before he talks about love being a profound mystery, in 5 verse 31, he quotes Genesis chapter 2, which is the, the story of the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, coming together in, in a union, becoming married. And this is the, the verse here from 
Genesis 2, which is also in Ephesians 5, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul writes his infamous line here, saying that this is a mystery. But the Greek word that Paul uses here, it has a translation range that doesn't just include mystery, it actually can be understood as secret. Meaning that this is not so much a mystery that we have no idea what he means, that we have no idea being able to interpret, but it's more the idea of a secret that's revealed to us when we consider God's design for it, when we consider how this relates to the gospel. What's the secret? Well, Paul tells us right afterwards. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, Paul begins verse 32 by saying this, which usually always means he's talking to what he had just written about, right? And he's talking about the union between a husband and a wife. So he says the husband and the wife coming together, being united, this is a profound mystery. But then right after that, he qualifies it and says, but actually, I'm talking about Christ and the church. So what mis- what's the mystery? What's the secret? Is he talking about Christ's relation to the church? Or is he talking about the union between a husband and a wife in marriage? Well, he's talking about both. He's talking about Christ and the church, and he's also talking about the husband and the wife. The secret is that marriage and the gospel of Jesus explain one another. G.W. Wright explains it this way. He says, Paul saw that when God designed the original marriage, he already had Christ and the church in mind. Which means then, if this is God's design for marriage, if he understood this plan of of Jesus serving the church before he even had the idea of, of husband and wife coming together in marriage, then the only way that marriage works as God intended it to is when each spouse models what Christ did for the church. When each spouse models God's self-giving love to each other. That's the formula. That's the mystery. That's the secret that Paul is talking about. And Jesus gave himself up for the church. He lived sacrificially. He uh, resisted the urge to be selfish, to live as he would want to, as his emotions and his body and his mind would have tempted him to take action towards. And instead, he served. He did it for the church. Now, I want to jump back a few verses in this chapter to provide a bit more context because this isn't just one isolated idea that, that the Apostle Paul hears has here in Ephesians chapter 5. This is kind of the large context for his understanding on marriage. We talked about how verse 21 talks about mutual submission, and in a couple of weeks from now, Pastor Brad's going to look specifically at that term because there's some technical nuances we need to understand about what it means to submit to one another, what it means to love one another, and how that also relates to what Christ has done for us as as followers of his. But I want to look further down in this section at verse 25, because this is where Paul actually provides his rationale for why husbands should love their wives. This is verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word. And, and he continu- continues on in that section. You can read that part for yourself. It's this understanding, again, of, of marriage being about holiness and, and sanctifying and improving each other into greater uh, God- godliness. But um, then he keeps on going here in verse 28. He says, In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own 
bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, if you're a husband this morning, you might think to yourself, that can't be right. I think that must be a typo. It should say, he who loves his wife loves his wife, right? If you love your wife, you love your wife. Wives might be saying, it also could say, he who loves his wife is smart, right? That's just happy wife, happy life, right? I mean, that's just, that's just what you do. He doesn't say either one. He says, he who loves his wife loves himself. And then he explains more about that uh, uh, later on. He talks about how about when you love your wife, uh, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. He has this, this understanding that the union between a man and a woman, not that it destroys each individual person, but now they are connected together into one. So when husbands love their wife, they're actually loving themselves because they're loving their marriage. They're loving the oneness of marriage. And the same thing applies to women uh, with their husbands. They're a team. They're no longer individuals. They, they serve each other. It's more about we than it is about me. Now, when I was 15, I played baseball. I played baseball for a number of years. But when I was 15, I was on a baseball team, and I remember specifically uh, one moment where our coach gave us some instruction. And this phrase has now been used lots, uh, but when I was younger, it wasn't used as much, and it wasn't posted all over the place. So, you know, it was a, a bit of a, of a different phrase. And, and so, um, that our coach was, was very much into the aspect of team. Now, in team sports, it's not a novelty that you don't do things for yourself. You don't try to perform to the best of your individual talents and abilities because sometimes you can do that and it actually doesn't help the team. There's a number of examples we can use in, in hockey and football and, and a number of other sports. But baseball is kind of a unique sport because baseball is a team sport, but it's also sort of an individual sport. When you're up at the plate, your team really can't do much to help you. They can cheer for you, and boy, there's a lot of, of softball teams where those girls on this, they, they really do a lot of cheering to help support their teammate. But none of them can actually help them hit the ball. Same thing out in the field. If you're playing second base and a line drive gets hit directly at you, you're kind of responsible for making the play. You can't really do too much. But the interesting thing about baseball is you can have a great individual performance, statistically speaking, and you can actually do or not do some things that hurts your team. You can miss a sign. You cannot advance a base. Uh, you cannot do a good job communicating to your teammates. And, and so our, our coach had our, our team huddled up, and he was trying to encourage us and, and remind us of the fact that even though we might be having a good game or performing individually, we need to be better teammates. And he said this, which I'm sure you've heard before. There's no I in team. There's no I in team. And I remember that there was a teammate who was huddled up close to me who was a, a bit of a selfish teammate, and he mumbled under his breath, yeah, but there's an M and an E. In marriage, there's no I in marriage. But of course, there is an I in marriage. And guess what? There's also an M, and there's also an E. But the problem isn't the individual letters that spell out marriage. The problem is our perspective on what marriage is. The problem is what we think marriage does for me, what it does for I. Our mentality is a bit backwards. 
because we don't always understand God's profound mystery. Because we're sinful people. We're selfish people. And for those of us who are married, it feels natural to view our marriage as a me marriage, as an I marriage, as what my spouse does for me. As far as what I put up to the table and what my spouse puts up for the table, making sure they're doing at least as much for me as I'm doing for them. But when God designed marriage, he had giving in mind, not getting in mind. Because Jesus is the one who gave himself up for us. Now, this is not how many people view marriage. Many people view marriage as an I marriage, a me marriage. And I think that this is really why most marriages fail. Because people don't have serving in mind, they have receiving in mind. Experts usually say communication problems or financial disagreements. Those are usually the top reasons, statistically, why marriages fail. But I think the most common denominator in every single marriage problem is the fact that each spouse is so self-centered. I think if you looked at every reason why, why a marriage would break down, it has something to do with the self-centeredness of each spouse in that equation. The greatest enemy to every marriage is selfishness. The greatest enemy to every marriage is self-centeredness. Which is why we must do everything, if you're married today, we must do everything to rid ourselves of selfishness. We have to attack our own desire to get what we want. Which pretty much goes against everything else that we're used to as people. We do things the way that we want to do. But not so in marriage, because marriage is about we. It's not about me. Spouses are teammates. They give up individual rights. They give up individuality for the sake of the team, for the sake of the marriage. Now, I could cite a a number of examples from the world of sports, um, partly because I I live most of my life in in the world of sports. But there's a better example to give. And, And there's lots of sports examples, by the way, too. We could look at different teams and we could say, you know, this team... Um, they didn't seem like a great team. You look at their talent, um, and, and there's lots of other teams that were more talented than they were, but for some reason, they, they put it all together. For some reason, each individual on that team understood their role as a teammate, and, and they, they succeeded. They won. They, they, they won a championship. And it's interesting how, how this is a bit of a mirror of, of teamwork, just as marriage is a teamwork. And guess what? When the team wins, the individuals win. But there's many examples in marriage where we can say, well, maybe one spouse won an argument over the other. And guess what? Your marriage doesn't win that way. We doesn't win. Me might win, but that is not what God had designed for marriage. A better example to use uh, outside of sports, though, is the idea of a military unit. And Keller, Keller cites this in his, his book. That the Greek word that Paul uses for the word submit actually has its roots in the military. He was kind of uh, using this to help them understand what happens when a soldier enlists. When, when someone enters into the, the military, they understand that they must submit to the authority of their officer, to their leader. If they don't, well, one, they're probably not going to be in the military for very long. But if they survive for a while and they choose not to obey and not to submit and respond to the leadership, there's detrimental things that can happen. I mean, lives are at stake there. And they understand within that environment how authority works. And so if you're a soldier, you actually sacrifice, you give up your individual rights for the sake of the team. That's how the team mentality is made up. As Keller 
explains in his book, when you join the military, you lose control over your schedule, over when you can take a holiday, over when you're going to eat, and even over what you eat. To be part of the whole, to become part of a greater unity, you have to surrender your independence. And this is exactly what Jesus did. He gave up divine equality with God so that he could take on the nature of a servant. He humbled himself in order to serve the church. He gave up his life so that we might have life. This, what Jesus did, is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, let's talk about how we make this idea, this notion practical. How do we apply this to our marriages? For those of you who are not married, how do you apply this concept to your relationships? Because marriage really is a relationship to the most extreme level. It's the deepest human relationship people can know. But the concept of of having a relationship so that you don't receive something, but that you give something, that you serve someone, is a biblical principle. So it applies to how you interact with coworkers and how you interact with other family members and friends. So how do we take this and make it practical? Well, if the greatest enemy of marriage is self-centeredness, we have to rid ourselves of selfishness. The temptation, of course, is to take this understanding to focus on the selfishness of our spouse and to work on that. Many of us are excellent at this. We understand that if this is the great enemy of our marriage, then let's make sure that our spouse stops acting so selfishly. So maybe your approach or the temptation could be, well, I'll just drop some subtle hints, the fact that my my husband or my wife is being selfish, and maybe that will rid her or him of their selfishness, and it will help God's design for marriage. You might be tempted to pray for your, your spouse. Pray that they would stop being so selfish. But guess what? Neither one of these aligns with what Paul's saying in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, you need to give yourself up. This ignores what Paul was saying. This is serving yourself by getting what you want from your spouse. The best action you can take is to see your own selfishness as a fundamental problem in your marriage and to treat it more seriously than you do your spouse's. The best action you can take is to see your own selfishness as a fundamental problem in your marriage and to treat it more selfishly, or seriously, excuse me, than you do your spouse's selfishness. And the reason that this will work is because only you have access to your own selfishness. You really can't change your spouse. Only you are responsible for how you respond and how self-centered you are. And realistically, too, only you are really responsible for your own selfishness. That's something that God holds you accountable to. Now, some of you might wonder how effective this will be if you're married to someone who's especially selfish. You might think, well, okay, if I take my own selfishness seriously and I work on that, how is that going to help my spouse? Well, there's uh, many examples, and logic will tell us that if you are serious about your own selfishness and you work hard on making sure that you serve your spouse, that will have an impact on your marriage. You might find that that your spouse now curiously is wondering why you're doing all these things to serve her or him. And they may choose to respond as well. They may ask you why you've changed your approach. But you know what? There might be some cases 
where your action and your change does not impact your spouse. But it will change you. And that's all that you can be held responsible for. And you can know that you're approaching marriage and loving your spouse as Paul instructs us to do in Ephesians chapter 5. And this is relevant to other relationships too. We're called to love our neighbor, to love others, to serve others more than we serve ourselves. And so as you reflect uh, on other relationships, especially if you're not married, I encourage you to think about how God might be using this principle applied to marriage, how it might relate to other relationships in your life. Maybe God is using today's message to speak to you about a relationship that has nothing to do with marriage. How you interact with your father, perhaps. How you interact with a coworker, or a roommate, or a friend who lives near you. The question that I'd like all of us to ask today is this. How, how am I acting selfishly? How am I acting selfishly in my marriage? How do I act selfishly when I interact with my brother? What do I do when I interact with my neighbor? How am I acting selfishly? Now, if you want a week-long challenge, you can ask these same questions while you spend time with God, while you're reading his word, while you're praying. You can ask the question, how, how am I acting selfishly in my marriage? How am I acting selfishly at work? If you're really daring, you can ask your spouse these questions. You could say to your spouse, how am I acting selfishly? Or to a worker, or to a friend. But whatever you do, don't leave this morning without realizing that the greatest enemy to every marriage is self-centeredness. And don't leave here today without thinking that your selfishness is not your responsibility. It is. And only you can be the one to work on it. If two spouses say to each other, I'm going to treat my own self-centeredness as the main problem in my marriage, you have a great recipe for a great marriage. If each spouse together says, I'm going to work on my own selfishness so that I can serve my spouse in my marriage, that is the perfect formula for a great marriage. And it's because that's God's intention for marriage. That's his intention. And this is what it means to love each other as Christ loves the church. He gave himself up for the church. And married people are called to serve their spouse and to give up themselves for their spouse. Our music team is going to come forward and they're going to lead us through a couple of songs. And these songs are, are reflective of the, fast, of the fact that, that Christ has served the church and he continues to serve the church. And so as we sing these songs... I encourage you to sing with grateful hearts, understanding that, that Christ has done a great work for us, understanding that he gave himself up for us. And you might also want to reflect, too, about how this message has an impact on your relationships, on your marriage. How can you better serve your spouse? How can you intentionally ensure that you are not putting yourself before them? How can you make a commitment to team and to make sure that you are doing this together? and not on your own. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you designed marriage and we know that you had a beautiful thing in your mind. And God, we're sinful people, we're selfish people, and it's so tempting to have the mentality that marriage is about me. 
Marriage is about being served. Marriage is about getting what I want. And Lord, I, I pray that your spirit would convict us today and that your, the truth of your word would flow free this morning, that we would understand that marriage is about giving, not about getting. Help us to see your model, how Christ served the church. Help us to see that and to live that in our marriage. Help us understand this profound mystery, this secret to what you have intended. And Lord, we thank you so much for the way that you've served us, that you emptied yourself and you became a servant for us. Amen.